This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear Shakespeare's Memory by Jorge Luis Borges. I would possess Shakespeare and possess him as no one had ever possessed anyone before. The story was chosen by Hisham Matar, whose first novel, In the Country of Men, was shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize in 2006. His latest novel, Anatomy of a Disappearance, was published in 2011. Hi, Hisham. Hello, Deborah. So have you been a lifelong reader of Borges? Has he been an influence on your own work? I've certainly read him for a long time. It's very difficult for me to say he's been an influence. I don't think he has, but um, he's been an influence on my thinking about literature. Because I think he has such a complex and intricate and agile intellect. But actually, I think he has a very simple, simple in the clear sense, temperament. Mm -hmm. So... He does this wonderful thing that I think is it's got to be one of the things that literature is about. It's a kind of thinking. He thinks through these stories. And he doesn't think, you know, in the sort of, you know, it's not an argument or a hypothesis, but he thinks in that playful way, mm-hmm. um, that way that he doesn't really know. You don't get the sense that he's figured it out and he wants to tell you, but he's exploring what this means and the possibilities of it. And that's just wonderful. So that by the end of a story, he might think something other than what he thought at the beginning? Or that the effect that he has on me, at least, is I feel that he has, my thinking has expanded. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it has sort of gone somewhere else. Well, this story, Shakespeare's Memory, was published very late in Borges' life. It might even have been the last story he wrote. It came out in 1983 in Spanish, and it came out in English in The New Yorker posthumously in 1998. When did you read it for the first time? I must have read it about seven years ago, I think. It's connected to what I had read before that, which is Everything and Nothing, the uh, the short uh, essay. Essay on Shakespeare. On Shakespeare. Yeah. There's, in fact, lots of references to that yeah. in this story. So it seemed a continuation of a conversation that he had started some time before. That he was having with Shakespeare or with, that he his, was having with his opinion of Shakespeare. Yes, ab- about Shakespeare in particular. But I think the story is not just about Shakespeare, but it's about what of the writer is in the work and how when we want to access that work, what it is actually that we are accessing. And it's also a meditation on what goes into the work from the writer's life, the relationship between the writer and the work, and that vast distance that exists between the pronoun I and the actual writer mm-hmm. himself. Then it seems to put all of that under question in such a way that is thrilling and exciting and and what I meant by expansive, you know, it mm-hmm. really expands that question rather than aims to answer it. And it runs exactly against all of those attempts of people sitting writers down and saying, well, so how did you write that? And how does that relate to your life? <laughs> you <know? laughs> it's autobiographical. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, the story is, it's a wonderful story. It's quite complicated in the beginning to follow. Do you want to set it up for, for listeners so they know what they're getting into? Well, it is about a Shakespearean scholar who is offered the memory of Shakespeare. And uh, the memory in its literal sense, in its complete uh, package, it's almost like computer programming, but he, (laughs) he acquires the memory of Shakespeare and it alters his day to day life, his sense of himself 
to the extent that even he feels he's forgetting the language of his parents. Mm -hmm. um, and so it is um, something that starts with a thrill and then ends up being quite a dark thing. Great. Well, we'll talk more after the story. And now here's Hisham Matar reading Shakespeare's memory. There are devotees of Goethe, of the Edda, of the late song of the Nibelungen. My fate has been Shakespeare. As it still is, though in a way that no one could have foreseen, no one save one man, Daniel Thorpe, who just recently died in Pretoria. There is another man, too, whose face I have never seen. My name is Erman Zurgel. The curious reader may have chanced to leaf through my Shakespeare chronology, which I once considered essential to a proper understanding of the texts. It was translated into several languages, including Spanish. Nor is it beyond the realm of possibility that the reader will recall a protracted diatribe against an emendation Theobald inserted into his critical edition of 1734, an emendation which became from that moment on an unquestioned part of the canon. Today, I am a little taken aback by the uncivil tone of those pages of mine, which I might almost say were written by another man. In 1914, I drafted but did not publish an article on the compound words that the Hellenist and dramatist George Chapman coined for his versions of Homer. In forging these terms, Chapman did not realize that he had carried English back to its Anglo-Saxon origins, the Wursprung of the language. It never occurred to me then that Chapman's voice, which I have now forgotten, might one day be so familiar to me. A scattering of critical and philological notes, as they are called, signed with my initials, complete, I believe, my literary biography. Although perhaps I might also be permitted to include an unpublished translation of Macbeth, which I began in order to distract my mind from the death of my brother, Otto Julius, who fell on the Western Front in 1917. I never finished translating the play. I came to realize that English has, to its credit, two registers, the Germanic and the Latinate, while our own German, in spite of its greater musicality, must content itself with one. I mentioned Daniel Thorpe. I was introduced to Thorpe by Major Barclay at a Shakespeare conference. I will not say where or when. I know all too well that such specifics are, in fact, vaguenesses. More important than Daniel Thorpe's face, which my partial blindness helps me to forget, was his notorious lucklessness. When a man reaches a certain age, there are several things he can simulate. Happiness is not one of them. Daniel Thorpe gave off an almost physical air of melancholy. After a long session, night found us in a pub, an undistinguished place that might have been any pub in London. To make ourselves feel that we were in England, which of course we were, we drained many a ritual pewter mug of dark warm beer. In Punjab, said the Major in the course of our conversation, a fellow once pointed out a beggar to me, Islamic legend apparently has it, you know, that King Solomon owned a ring that allowed him to understand the language of the birds, 
and this particular beggar, so everyone believed, had somehow come into possession of that ring. The value of the ring was so beyond all reckoning that the poor bugger could never sell it, and he died in one of the courtyards of the mosque of Wazir Khan in Lahore. It occurred to me that Chaucer must have been familiar with the tale of that miraculous ring, but mentioning it would have spoiled Barclay's anecdote. And what became of the ring? I asked. Lost now, of course, as that sort of magical thingamajig always is, probably in some secret hiding place in the mosque, or on the finger of some chap who's off living somewhere where there are no birds. Or where there are so many, I noted, that one can't make out what they are saying for the racket. Your story has something of the parable about it, Barclay. It was at that point that Daniel Thorpe spoke up. He spoke somehow impersonally, without looking at us. His English had a peculiar accent, which I attributed to a long stay in the East. It is not a parable, he said. Or if it is, it is nonetheless a true story. There are things that have a price so high they can never be sold. The words I am attempting to reconstruct impressed me less than the conviction with which Daniel Thorpe spoke them. We thought he was going to say something further, but suddenly he fell mute, as though he regretted having spoken at all. Barclay said good night. Thorpe and I returned together to the hotel. It was quite late by now, but Thorpe suggested we continue our conversation in his room. After a short exchange of trivialities, he said to me, Would you like to own King Solomon's ring? I offer it to you. That is a metaphor, of course, but the thing the metaphor stands for is every bit as wondrous as the ring. Shakespeare's memory, from his youngest boyhood days to early April 1616, I offer it to you. I could not get a single word out. It was as though I had been offered the ocean. Thorpe went on, I am not an impostor. I am not insane. I beg you to suspend judgment until you hear me out. Major Barclay no doubt told you that I am, or was, a military physician. The story can be told very briefly. It begins in the East, in a field hospital, at dawn. The exact date is not important. An enlisted man named Adam Clay, who had been shot twice, offered me the precious memory almost literally with his last breath. Pain and fever, as you know, make us creative. I accepted his offer without crediting it. Besides, after a battle, nothing seems so very strange. He barely had time to explain the singular conditions of the gift. The one who possesses it must offer it aloud, and the one who is to receive it must accept it the same way. The man who gives it loses it forever. The name of the soldier and the pathetic scene of the bestowal struck me as literary in the worst sense of the word. It all made me somewhat leery. And you now possess Shakespeare's memory? What I possess, Thorpe answered, are still two memories my own personal memory and the memory of the Shakespeare that I partially am, or 
Rather, two memories possess me. There is a place where they merge somehow. There is a woman's face. I'm not sure what century it belongs to. And the memory that was Shakespeare's, I asked, what have you done with it? There was a silence. I have written a fictionalized biography, he said at last, which garnered the contempt of critics but won some small commercial success in the United States and the colonies. I believe that's all. I have warned you that my gift is not a sinecure. I am still waiting for your answer. I sat thinking, had I not spent a lifetime, however colorless and ordinary, in pursuit of Shakespeare? Was it not fair that, at the end of my labors, I find him? I said, carefully pronouncing each word, I accept Shakespeare's memory. Something happened, of that there is no doubt, but I did not feel it happen. Maybe just a slight sense of fatigue, perhaps imaginary. I clearly recall that Thorpe did tell me, the memory has entered your mind, but it must be discovered. It will emerge in dreams or when you are awake, when you turn the pages of a book or turn a corner. Don't be impatient. Don't invent recollections. Chance in its mysterious workings may help you along, or it may hold you back. As I gradually forget, you will remember. I cannot tell you how long the process will take. We dedicated what remained of the night to a discussion of the character of Shylock. I refrained from trying to discover whether Shakespeare had had personal dealings with Jews I did not want Thorpe to imagine that I was putting him to some sort of test. I did discover, whether with relief or uneasiness I cannot say, that his opinions were as academic and conventional as my own. In spite of that long night without sleep, I hardly slept at all the following night. I found, as I had so many times before, that I was a coward. Out of fear of disappointment, I could not deliver myself up to open-handed hope. I preferred to think that Thorpe's gift was illusory. But hope did irresistibly come to prevail. I would possess Shakespeare and possess him as no one had ever possessed anyone before, not in love or friendship or even hatred. I, in some way, would be Shakespeare. Not that I would write the tragedies or the intricate sonnets, but I would recall the instant at which the witches, who are also the fates, had been revealed to me, the other instant at which I had been given the vast lines and shake the yoke of inauspicious stars from this world-wearied flesh. I would remember Anne Hathaway as I remembered that mature woman who taught me the ways of love in an apartment in Lübeck so many years ago. I tried to recall that woman, but I could only recover the wallpaper, which was yellow, and the light that streamed in through the window. This first failure might have foreshadowed those to come. I had hypothesized that the images of that wondrous memory would be primarily visual. Such was not the case. Days later, as I was shaving... 
I spoke into the mirror a string of words that puzzled me. A colleague informed me that they were from Chaucer's ABC. One afternoon, as I was leaving the British Museum, I began whistling a very simple melody that I had never heard before. The reader will surely have noted the common thread that links these first revelations of the memory. It was, despite the splendor of some metaphors, a good deal more auditory than visual. De Quincey says that man's brain is a palimpsest. Every new text covers the previous one and is in turn covered by the text that follows. But all powerful memory is able to exhume any impression, no matter how momentary it might have been, if given sufficient stimulus. To judge by the will he left, there was not a single book in Shakespeare's house, not even the Bible and yet everyone is familiar with the books he so often repaired to. Chaucer, Goer, Spencer, Christopher Marlowe, Hollinshed's Chronicles, Florio's Montaigne, North's Plutarch. I possessed, at least potentially, the memory that had been Shakespeare's, the reading, which is to say the re-reading, of those old volumes would be the stimulus I sought. I also reread the sonnets, which are his works of greatest immediacy. Once in a while I came up with the explication, or with many explications. Good lines demand to be read aloud. After a few days, I had effortlessly recovered the harsh ars and open vowels of the 16th century. In an article I published in the Zeitschrift für Germanische Philologie, I wrote that Sonnet 127 referred to the memorable defeat of the Spanish Armada. I had forgotten that Samuel Butler advanced that same thesis in 1899. A visit to Stratford-upon-Avon was, predictably enough, sterile. Then came the gradual transformation of my dreams. I was to be granted neither a splendid nightmares a la de Quincy, nor pious allegorical visions in the manner of his master, Jean-Paul. It was unknown rooms and faces that entered my nights. The first face I identified was Chapman's. Later there was Ben Jonson's, and the face of one of the poet's neighbors, a person who does not figure in the biographies but whom Shakespeare often saw. The man who acquires an encyclopedia does not thereby acquire every line, every paragraph, every page, and every illustration. He acquires the possibility of becoming familiar with one and another of those things. If that is the case with a concrete and relatively simple entity, given I mean the alphabetical order of its parts, etc., then what must happen with a thing that is abstract and variable, Ondoyant et divers, a dead man's magical memory, for example. No one may capture in a single instant the fullness of his entire past. That gift was never granted even to Shakespeare, as far as I know, much less to me, who was but his partial heir. A man's memory is not a summation, it is a chaos of vague possibilities. Saint Augustine, if I am not mistaken, speaks of the palaces and the caverns of memory. The second metaphor is the more fitting one. It was into those caverns that I descended. Like our own, 
Shakespeare's memory included regions, broad regions of shadow, regions that he willfully shunned. It was not without shock that I remembered how Ben Jonson had made him recite Latin and Greek hexameters, and how his ear, the incomparable ear of Shakespeare, would go astray in many of them to the hilarity of his fellows. I knew states of happiness and of darkness that transcend common human experience. Without my realizing it, long and studious solitude had prepared me for the docile reception of this miracle. After some thirty days, the dead man's memory had come to animate me fully. For one curiously happy week, I almost believed myself Shakespeare. His work renewed itself for me. I knew that for Shakespeare the moon was less the moon than it was Diana, and less Diana than that dark, drawn-out word, moon. I noted another discovery, Shakespeare's apparent instances of inadvertence, those absences d'Alphini, of which Hugo speaks apologetically, were deliberate. Shakespeare tolerated them, or actually interpolated them, so that his discourse, destined for the stage, might appear to be spontaneous and not overly polished and artificial, nicht ulzu glatt und gekunstelt. That same goal inspired him to mix his metaphors. My way of life is fallen into the seer, the yellow leaf. One morning I perceived a sense of guilt deep within his memory. I did not try to define it. Shakespeare himself has done so for all time. Suffice it to say that the offense had nothing in common with perversion. I realized that the three faculties of the human soul, memory, understanding, and will, are not some mere scholastic fiction. Shakespeare's memory was able to reveal to me only the circumstances of the man Shakespeare. Clearly, these circumstances do not constitute the uniqueness of the poet. What matters is the literature the poet produced with that frail material. I was naive enough to contemplate a biography, just as Thorpe had. I soon discovered, however, that the literary genre required a talent for writing that I did not possess. I do not know how to tell a story. I do not know how to tell my own story, which is a great deal more extraordinary than Shakespeare's. Besides, such a book would be pointless. Chance or fate dealt Shakespeare those trivial, terrible things that all men know. It was his gift to be able to transmute them into fables, into characters that were much more alive than the grey man who dreamed them, into verses which the generations will never abandon, into verbal music. What purpose would it serve to unravel that wondrous fabric, besiege and mine the tower, reduce to the modest proportions of a documentary biography or a realistic novel, the sound and fury of Macbeth? Goethe, as we all know, is Germany's official religion. The worship of Shakespeare, which we profess not without nostalgia, is more private. In England, the official religion is Shakespeare, who is so unlike the English. England's sacred book, however, is the Bible. Throughout the first stage of this adventure, 
I felt the joy of being Shakespeare throughout the last terror and oppression. At first, the waters of the two memories did not mix. In time, the great torrent of Shakespeare threatened to flood my own modest stream, and very nearly did so. I noted with some nervousness that I was gradually forgetting the language of my parents. Since personal identity is based on memory, I feared for my sanity. My friends would visit me. I was astonished that they could not see that I was in hell. I began not to understand the everyday world around me, the Ultaglicium Welt. One morning I became lost in a welter of great shapes forged in iron, wood, and glass. Shrieks and deafening noises assailed and confused me. It took me some time, it seemed an infinity, to recognize the engines and cars of the Bremen railway station. As the years pass, every man is forced to bear the growing burden of his memory. I staggered beneath the two, which sometimes mingled, my own and the incommunicable others. The wish of all things, Spinoza says, is to continue to be what they are. The stone wishes to be stone, the tiger, tiger, and I wanted to be Hermann Surgel again. I've forgotten the date on which I decided to free myself. I hit upon the easiest way. I dialed telephone numbers at random. The voice of a child or a woman would answer. I believed it was my duty to respect their vulnerable estates. At last, a man's refined voice answered. Do you, I asked, want Shakespeare's memory? Consider well, it is a solemn thing I offer, as I can attest. An incredulous voice replied, I will take that risk. I accept Shakespeare's memory. I explained the conditions of the gift. Paradoxically, I felt both a nostalgie for the book I should have written, and now never would, and a fear that the guest, the spectre, would never abandon me. I hung up the receiver and repeated, like a wish, these resigned words. Simply the thing I am shall make me live. I had invented exercises to awaken the antique memory. I had to seek others to erase it. One of many was the study of the mythology of William Blake, that rebellious disciple of Swedenborg. I found it to be less complex than merely complicated. That and other paths were futile. All led me to Shakespeare. I hit at last upon the only solution that gave hope courage, strict, vast music, Bach. P.S. 1924 I am now a man among men. In my waking hours, I am Professor Emeritus Hermann Zurgel. I putter about the card catalogue and compose erudite trivialities, but at dawn I sometimes know that the person dreaming is that other man. Every so often in the evening I am unsettled by small, fleeting memories that are perhaps authentic. That was Hisham Matar reading Shakespeare's Memory by Jorge Luis Borges. 
The English translation by Andrew Hurley appeared in The New Yorker in 1998 and can be found in the collected fictions which is published by Penguin. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. So, Hisham, I want to talk a bit about the layering of the storytelling here. We have Borges telling us the story of Hermann Sorgel, who meets Daniel Thorpe, who met Adam Clay, who got memories that belong to Shakespeare. They were introduced by Major Barclay. It takes almost half the story to get through all of these layers to what actually happened. Borges seems sort of purposely to make the beginning of this story as complicated as possible. Why, why do you think he did that? I mean, it's it's sort of it's at the form of of the essay the story takes. It's a kind of uh, exploration of these of these ideas, but also I think all of the characters that he creates are bizarrely bland. Mm-hmm. You know, they're sort of plain canvases, which makes the whole idea of acquiring a memory like Shakespeare's all the more frightening in a sense, all the more overwhelming. We talk about the drabness of the characters that Borges creates, but then he also talks about or Sorgel talks about Shakespeare as this gray man with this pretty dull life, and he he acquires this memory, and all he thinks of is some, you know, the next-door neighbor's face. Yeah. Um, And a line from Chaucer, kind of insignificant tune to whistle. So you have this sense he's acquired something that's not particularly exciting, and Shakespeare's memories were just as banal as anybody else's. And then he has that one paragraph where he says, you know, I, I knew states of happiness and darkness that transcend common human experience, mm, mm. which he never describes in any way. To, yeah, so, it's a whole paragraph, just that sentence. Yeah. Yeah. Is it a contradiction? I think perhaps, perhaps what's going on is that just like how when two people read the same book, they place emphasis on different sides of the book, that somehow because Ehrman... Zorgel is not a man of adventure, although he calls this an adventure. And I think the story is actually structured as an adventure, too. Mm-hmm. But he's not at heart a man, a man of adventure. That he relates to the mundane side of Shakespeare, which of course must have existed. And maybe Zorgel was relating to that. And also the nature of memory. I mean, he, he's, he's so excited that he's going to be able to remember Anne Hathaway the way that he remembers this mature woman in yeah, Lubeck. Yeah. And then he tries to remember the mature woman in Lubeck. All he can remember yeah. is the curtains. Yeah, you know, yeah. He doesn't Walter, actually remember yeah. her at all. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a sense that he's been given this gift, which is potentially rich, but he's been given no key for interpreting it. Yes, and I think also he's been given this gift that has not enriched his own sense of the world, his mm-hmm. own identity, mm-hmm. that it's a gift that has undermined what he thinks of himself or what he feels himself to be in the world. 
it's almost a cautionary tale in that sense, no? Mm-hmm. And, and, and also, it puts a big question mark on to what extent is the author in the work? And to what extent is it appropriate when we are captivated by a book to want to know anything about the writer? Well, and that, that goes back a little bit to um, Everything and Nothing, the essay, mm. or his essay yeah. on Shakespeare, yeah. which I think brings up one of the last lines is that Sorgel quotes the... Um, Simply the thing I am shall make me live. Yes. You know, which is taken from All's Well That Ends Well, which is a line that Parolis speaks, the man whose name means words and who spent most of the play fabulating. And then he's basically renouncing this behavior. So so we have Sorgel renouncing, not fabulation, but renouncing the, the acquisition of somebody else's identity, saying, I'm just going to go back to being myself. You also had Shakespeare saying it in a sense. We also had Borges saying it a little bit in in that essay and in this story. Mm. It's interesting layering of writers saying, I'm giving this up. Yeah. I've had yeah. enough. Yeah. But then it also raises the question of, is there anything to go back to? Absolutely. And that line that you quote immediately reminded me of uh, Iago's line of, I am not what I am. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. That it is a questioning of both the singularity of experience, but also how connected all of these things are and that there's something incredibly fluid about the suggestion that you can anyway acquire somebody's memory, mm-hmm. you know. And it puts under question how singular then is anybody's memory. Even in everything and nothing, there's a suggestion of this. But the sense that you get when you read Shakespeare, that you sense that he has tapped into some subterranean human network of emotions and psychology and feeling and, and memory, actually, mm-hmm. nature, mm-hmm. it is very difficult to, to accept that it belongs to one man, mm-hmm. you know? And so I think his work itself puts under question the idea of, of the singularity of, right. of memory. Right. Yeah. There's, there's sort of a deep suspicion running through this story and, and through everything and nothing that perhaps... This didn't come from Shakespeare somehow. Perhaps mm. this somehow mm. that Shakespeare the man is a real disappointment. Uh, that yeah, these and words have some separate existence. Yeah. I'm not for a moment comparing myself to any of these people. <laughs> but as a writer, I know that there are moments when uh, you are pushing the text. Mm-hmm. And there are moments, and there are the sweetest moments, when the text runs ahead of you and they last for seconds. But you write a sentence or a paragraph, if you're lucky, that you know that or you believe that you you were never capable of writing it. Mm-hmm. It exceeded your your abilities and your expectations. And it really doesn't feel like it's yours at all. And I know this it's a whole can of worms about all mm-hmm. this and everybody's, you know, what what does this mean? What's inspiration? Yeah. What's, yeah. Where does it come yeah. from? But it seems to me an instinctively probable proposition that all human experience is somehow connected in some level. That would then explain why that uh, a boy growing up in Libya reading Shakespeare is moved uh, by it, or somebody somewhere else listening to Chostakovich means something to them, or they see a painting by Cezanne and it means something to them, that somehow it's not as complex as, as Mm -hmm. as it sounds, the proposition. And therefore Shakespeare, in a sense is uh, a genius exactly because of how deeply connected he was to the things that that seem universally true and profound and 
and, and moving. And I think the other thing that he shares with Borges, they're both in some level moral writers. They're mm-hmm. deeply interested in morality, mm-hmm. in that sense that I was trying to describe of thinking, mm-hmm. of writing as a way of thinking about complicated questions and situations. And what humans do to each other. Yeah. 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 And, and what they're capable of doing and what the doing does to them. How do you think we're leaving Sorgo? I mean, he's supposedly given up this memory, and yet he still gets flashes of yeah. it. And yeah. he can't quite shake it, and he's got to go and read William Blake to try and mm. rid his mind of mm. it. What state has he been left in? Does he get his own identity <clears throat> back? I think he's in, a, he's in a vulnerable position, and it's the sort of position, in a sense, a very extreme portrait of that position, but it's a position that I think all great literature inflicts on its reader. Mm-hmm. There's this warm, nice, uh, middle-class sense about literature. You sit in a nice room and you read a book <laughs> and you pass time. But serious literature is yeah. dangerous. Yeah. It's da- it, it matters when you read it and how you read it, and it, it really never leaves you. Great books that have had an impact on you remain with you, around you. Their silence remains, actually, too. Mm-hmm. The quality of their silence remains. And so this is a very extreme... <laughs> state of a man that has been, in a way, invaded, re- rewired by, by this yeah. this great uh, work and this great man. And no, I don't. I don't think he's very well. What do you think that about way. that last line of the official story where he offers up Bach as an antidote to Fant- Shakespeare? Fantastic, <laughs> fantastic. No, I mean in the sense that uh, he's completely right. <laughs> <laughs> Music is, it, it's the thing itself, you know? It's sort of, what I mean by that is that it's manifest. It's not a translation mm-hmm. of an idea. Bach wasn't, and sometimes he was translating, translating a certain mood, but more times than not, he wasn't translating at all. It was the thing is what you're listening to. There's no distance between it. And that immediacy is enviable to me as a, a, clarity. As a writer. As a enviable. clarity yeah. to it that, yeah. that isn't in these murky, floating memories. Yes, So Daniel Thorpe in the story raises this issue of whether the story of King Solomon's ring is a is a parable and says it's not a parable because it's actually it's come true in my own life. What do you think Borges was doing with this story of of King Solomon's ring, which is a parable? In my mind, he belongs to an older generation of writers, Borges does, in this particular regard, in the in the way that he was feeding off texts, mythology, tales from many different places around the world mm-hmm. and energized actually a lot of writers, younger writers, to, to think that way. Somebody like Octavio Paz's relationship to Indian literature, I think, was made somehow possible from mm-hmm. an imaginative point of view by Borges. And it's something that you don't see so much now, actually. You know, mm-hmm. writers very much, or most writers seem to stick very much to a very cultural, literary tradition, singular which is what always made me feel when I was reading him that I was reading one of my own. I felt mm-hmm. he was Arabic when I was reading him. I didn't. Uh, you know, he has uh, a little uh, bit of a uh, thousand and one nights feeling to it. There are so yeah. many little stories that unfold in this way. Yes, and, yeah. and and you know from his writings that he's read the things that you've yeah. read. He's read the Arabian Nights. He's read the Quran. He's read all of these older poets. Mm-hmm. You know, he makes references to these people and uses words from from mm-hmm. those languages. And it's just so uh, inspiring, and it, it does that thing that we mentioned earlier, this kind of expansiveness of his mind and his heart, too, mm-hmm. you know, in, in, 
in what he creates, in the sense that you always get when you read him that you feel that the world has somehow been nudged or it's become a little bit bigger. You know? mm-hmm. Which what I feel is with, with every great work of art, once you read it or see it or listen to it, you walk out on the street and you feel the world has changed just a little bit in mm-hmm. some way or has been enlivened by, by this work. Well, thank you so much, Hisham. Pleasure, thank you. Hisham Matar's most recent novel is Anatomy of a Disappearance, an excerpt from which appeared in the January 24, 2011 issue of The New Yorker. You can read it online at newyorker.com. You can subscribe to this podcast as well as to The New Yorker Out Loud and the Political Scene podcast in the iTunes store. You can also download the weekly audio edition of The New Yorker through iTunes or audible.com or join the conversation on our Facebook page. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by NewYorker.com and Curtis Fox Productions. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.